1: Hey there! Welcome to the show. I hope you are prepared to revel in wrong think. I've got one of my favorite wrong thinkers joining me now, Gary Welch. Hi, Gary. Hi,
2: Brian. And in a world where absurdity and hyper- hyperbole has taken on new new success, you get one hour now of of, of just pure reason, pure logic. <laughs> no no hyperbole no no absurdities just everything you're going to hear for the next hour is
1: right on the level i'm sorry i was checking my sarcasm detector to see if you were being sarcastic <laughs> okay no, no i i'm i'm grateful that you and i have this chance to to have the conversation we're about to have um we we talk about a lot of interesting things and and Gary the last thing last time we talked i don't think we had uh, had a chance to discuss the whole short sell, GameStop, big money versus the little guys dynamic that played out, um, you know, over the last part of last week. Give me your best take on uh, Wall Street or the, the oligarchy versus uh, the, the rest of us. What, what did you think about that?
2: Welcome to American socialism. Yeah, we've been preaching this for a while now. We are a socialist state. We are not a capitalist country. The wrongs that everybody blames on capitalism is really the wrongs of American socialism. And they prove it to us almost on a weekly basis that no, we are not a capitalist society. We are not a constitutional republic. We're not a democracy, although we never were. But this whole idea that the people are in charge, man, dump it, get out of it. GameStop is just one of many, many. Sh- indicators that hey um
1: somebody's running this country and it's not us no it's it's true and as as uncomfortable as these times are right now and i know for everybody there there aren't very many people who are at least still able to fog a mirror who don't on some level feel in their hearts "Eh, this doesn't feel right something's just not right but uh you know to to finally really see Hey, that system—the one that you were taught—hey, it's working in your interest, and it's there to, you know, to make sure that you can live the American dream. The the financial system, for instance, well, it it turns out, uh, you know, there's us and there's them. As George Carlin put it, it's part, it's a big club, and you're not part of it. And people are finally getting a chance to see that for themselves. They're getting a chance to see the political class doesn't really look out for them either. It's about time.
2: And I refer to it as Jacob Marley's chains in that, you know, link by link they're they're adding them on, but we don't feel them. You know, we just like, oh, well, yeah, there's something there, but I'm just going to continue on in my daily life. That's just the way it is. Um, we just keep moving on and, and just link by link. They keep adding more and more to us until one day we're going to look down and go, wait a second, where, where did all these chains come from?
1: Well, and it's, it's compounded by the idea that those who are in power and, and some of them elected, many of them not, but those who, who have that kind of power and influence will oftentimes pretend or try to give the impression, Oh, Gary, Gary, we're just here to help you. We're just looking out for you when in reality they're not, you know, and, and I'm, I'm happy to see that people are starting to wake up to the fact that, Hey, all of that talk about how, um, this system really, it's its trying to rule you, but it doesn't really represent you. It's finally starting to break through. Of course, that leaves some people with questions like, okay, so what do we do? How do you fight big, te- big tech, big government, big money? They seem very, uh, very unstoppable at the moment.
2: And I, I do feel like a lot of us are feeling that right now. It's like, this is an unwinnable war. and And it's one of the things that I've always argued with the conspiracy theorists is that if you guys are right, it's an unwinnable war. You can't win because they control everything. So don't go with that argument because all you do is discourage everyone when in fact they really are not all that powerful as we we would like to make them out to be, but they are in power. And to your point about, you know, they always say that we are here to help you. You know what really scares me about that, Brian? What's that? Is they really think they are. That's that they, that be, they it. believe it. Yes. <laughs> that and, and, and that they are the only ones, you know, you cannot help yourself. Only I can save you because I have all of the enlightenment that I need in order to save you, you poor dumb people from
1: yourselves. Well, as as harsh as it may sound to say this. Um, all of the fencing, the barbed wire, the armed you know, combat troops standing around Washington, DC, I'm, fi- I'm finally starting to understand why why that is necessary in the minds of the ruling class. And, and I really believe it comes back to they know that the public is catching on. They know they've been backing us into a corner. They know that a lot of people are mad as hell and they're not gonna take it anymore, to quote from the movie network. And and so they're they're trying to, uh, you know, protect themselves, protect their power. And ironically, it seems as though the harder they squeeze, the harder they try to clamp down on this, the more it's, it's likely to backfire in their faces.
2: So power like heroin is a very, very strong addiction and it only ends in, in utter failure, in that, you know, in heroin's case, it kills you. And in politics, it's when you get overthrown because it's never enough. And you do whatever it takes to maintain your addiction. And that's what we're seeing. And I've always talked about this. Governments always move to the point of failure. They will always push, 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 go, 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 add more, more, more until the point that it collapses. They never back off willingly. They always will allow it to collapse unless something intervenes in between them. And that's that's always what we've been preaching is the train is heading off the cliff. They are throwing more logs onto the fire to speed it up. If we do not intervene pretty soon, this thing is going off the cliff and we will be the recipients of that.
1: Wow. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some solutions, because I know that you are not the kind of person and neither am I to just simply, uh, you know, tuck tail and, oh, I guess we'll just do what we're told then. And, you know, we'll just give up. Maybe I'll just go die now since, you know, this thing, things aren't going my way. Um, I know you are very dedicated to, to the cause of freedom. Um, you're dedicated to prosperity. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do, even, even against the giant. I think the David and Goliath comparisons last week during the, the whole GameStop issue were we're more apt than people may have realized. What do you do when you're facing down a a giant? How do you, how do you take down the giant? So
2: when way back when, when I was um, a younger and naive man, um, I was in Washington state and in, in the suburbs of Seattle, where in the city of Seattle, they didn't you know just elect liberals. They elect socialists and communists. They were socialists on the city council. They were communists. I think they had a communist mayor at one time. And so, you know, there was this far left and I was with the Republican Party. And so, you know, we felt overwhelmed. We were like, man, this is hard. These guys own everything. They control everything. They are they are, even pushing farther left than even what a lot of Democrats would say. Whoa, that's too far. But there's nothing we could do. And I had a good mentor one time come to me. And I don't know if there's a book out there. If not, you know, I'm giving this away, Brian, but let's write the book. And And that is, he taught me about the Sun Tzu of politics. ah. Uh-huh. And so if, for those of you who don't know, those of you who went through uh, regular public education, Sun Tzu was a tactician um, over in China long, long, long ago, thousands of years ago. And he had strategies that he wrote down about how a smaller army can take on a larger army. And so the, he wrote the book *The Art of War*. And what this guy did is said, "Let's take the aspects of *The Art of War* and apply it to politics."
1: So we, we we're breaking away here in about uh, a little less than a minute. Um, any, do you want to tease us with anything that we could we'll be be touching on here on the on the return?
2: Yeah. So here's the thing we have to understand, and and these are like the basic components of it. Number one is. You are bigger. There's more of us than there is them, but they have all the power. And then the other side of this is take the, you know, the big thing is have patience. And then the last thing is always do the unexpected. Don't hit them where they're the strongest. Hit them where they're the weakest.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, people wonder about, oh, well, the art of war. Is that still a classic? I mean, that information's pretty old. Yeah, but it's still pretty Right. In other words, Sun Tzu, the guy knew what he was talking about. We'll take a quick break. We'll continue with Gary Welch right after this.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to thank our sponsors, including Monticello College and also uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Gary Welch is my guest, and there's a lot going on right now that has people feeling nervous, Gary. I don't think I've ever talked to more people from different age groups, demographics, uh, different uh, political points of view. And had more people say some variation of the phrase, I just can't believe what's going on around us right now. I mean, it's, it's almost like, I don't know. They, they are feeling a sense of surrealism in, in the scenes that are playing out before us. And on the one hand, it can feel like there, there, we don't have a lot of options. You and I know better, but sometimes we have to think a little smaller or a little closer to home um, Talk to me about your thoughts. Uh, I know a lot of people are obsessed with the idea that, hey, Biden is going to destroy the country. And is that is that a reasonable fear or is is that a fear that's being played upon and magnified that may not be based in reality?
2: He will not do it within his term, um, just like all the other things that have been done by even, you know, even Republican predecessors. He is, though, going to do things that will ultimately end our country as we know it. The things he's putting into place right now, and then you know we don't reverse them when the Republicans get in in power. They don't take and say, "Oh, let's stop doing that." Obamacare, people, let's let's all remember that still here, right? You know, so yes, eventually will. But if you're thinking like, "Oh, we're going to you know totally collapse in the next four years." I don't believe it. Just if we let things go, it could happen, though. But it would be dependent upon the anger and the frustration level of those of us that would classify ourselves as libertarians and conservatives and, and whatnot. That if if that anger level goes to the point where we say, OK, you push too much now and then we react to it. That actually would be the catastrophic end, not not what he did, but that he just triggered a revolution.
1: I would think at some point, though, people are going to have to put their foot down. I mean, I look at the power grab that's going on right now, and especially the labeling of anybody who does not fully embrace, you know, the uh, ideology of the, the current administration as not, not just, you know, an, a political opponent, but as terrorists as, as you know, as something that needs to be eradicated. Um, I don't think I've ever seen the, the the pendulum swing quite so hard in terms of those in power and and the, the work that they're going to right now to consolidate that grasp on power and eliminate anything that could potentially challenge that grasp.
2: So here's the thing, though, that I want to put in perspective, because this applies exactly to what we want to talk about. What you are seeing is the manifestation of a hundred years of effort. They spent a hundred years building to this point, and it is now where they want it to be. They control everything. They control the media. They control the academics, the universities and the schools. They control the government and they control the big corporations. And they've created a, a an economy where only big corporations can do things and rule things that we allow them to do that. Everybody, th- you know, this is like one of the things I talk about with American socialism. Everybody says, oh, big corporations, that's capitalism. No, it is not. In a pure capitalist world, there is no big corporations because they're always getting knocked out because of competition. Big corporations only exist in a socialist society that allows them to control the narrative, to control the markets. So, you know, they now have all that, but they took 100 years to get here. And all they're doing is saying, "Okay, this was our end game. We're now playing it out.
1: Should we be? Should we be alarmed or is this something that uh, it, it, are, are we making a bigger deal out of it than, than it needs to be?
2: No, we're, we. it is everything you think it is. And it's as bad as you think it is. The problem is, how do you address it? How do we rectify this? And, and I've had numerous conversations with influencers other than yourself. It's like, Brian's the only guy who really gets it anymore. You know, and I'm <laughs> and I'm having these conversations with these people that I think is like you should get this. This, this isn't so hard to understand. And, and that is we're, we're impatient. We want we want it now, today. And, and everything we do is how do I get results this morning? And how do I get results in the next five days? And how do I stop this thing from happening right now? And that is a, you know, that's you standing in front of the bulldozer with your hand out saying, stop, stop, stop. And because I'm here with my hand out, you're going to stop. No, you're just going to get rolled over.
1: Yeah, there's I, I don't think I've ever sensed, uh, you know, a more disturbing direction of where where this country is going generally. And I'm talking politically, socially, culturally. And, and I don't mean to I don't mean to make it sound dramatic here, but I think we're, we're witnessing what happens when a culture goes into decline. And it's happened before in world history. It's this is not we're not breaking new ground here. We're making some of the same mistakes that other civilizations and other societies before us have made. I'm hoping, though, that we have learned enough from what we've seen in their examples that we don't crash and burn quite the same way that they did. In other words, if there's if there's a way to come out of this and to improve our situation on the other side of it, I think we have a pretty good chance based on what's happened before. Whether or not people embrace that, though, still very much up in the air.
2: Hmm. That's actually a good point. Maybe we're going to go off topic here, but I like to talk about that because. There is a general sentiment within America that like the Roman Empire, we have our we've had our rise and we are now in decline. And it's inevitable because that's what history does. You have a rise of empire like the Romans, like the Assyrians, like the British. And then it starts to go into decline. And so we are feeling that way. But I'd always like to remind people about, you know, if you really look at those empires, you will see times, especially in the Roman Empire, where they were in a state of decline and then someone comes along and reverses that decline and pushes them back up and then they go. Will the United States eventually fail? Yes. That is in the, the you know, that's in the mantra of history. It says that that will happen. But if I can make that for another thousand years that it happens and that there's something better to replace it, I'm cool with that. But we get this feeling like it's already here. There's nothing we can do. History says that this is all going to fail and we're just witnessing it. Okay, be a spectator, stand by and watch. And yes, it will happen. But history also says that if individuals, the right individuals, and it doesn't take a majority, it just takes a small group of individuals to stand up and say, no, we can reverse this. Maybe we can stop this and the United States can exist for another thousand years.
1: I want to believe that it's possible, but uh, based on historical cycles, I have to say I, I wonder if I wonder if we're going to learn some of the same hard lessons that others have learned, and and that doesn't mean therefore you know let's drive a stake through the heart of what was once America. But um, I gotta say, Gary, I'm I'm becoming a lot more open to the idea that maybe it's time to focus on building what what comes next. Hmm.
2: I'm not there yet. I'm not even close to being there yet, uh, simply because I don't want to move. I like where I'm at.
1: So. No, I got you. I, got, I, <laughs> I won't try to drag you, you know, uh, screaming and kicking, you know, to that point. But um, the the system itself and I'm talking, you know, I'm, I'm going to look just at the, the whole uh, the financial system, the uh, the political system. A lot of these institutions have become so compromised. I'm just not sure that there's, there's a way back from here that, that doesn't include it's, it, it comes to the ground and has to be rebuilt. And, and maybe, right, so, maybe I'm lacking perspective.
2: No, let, let, let's just take for when we get back from the break, let's you and I have a conversation and maybe because I know a lot of people feel just like you. Let me inject some optimism into this scenario using Sun Tzu.
1: I would like that. Actually, I'd like that a lot. Okay, we'll take a break. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Please stay with us.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: Hey, once again, thank you for joining us as we revel in wrong think. Gary Welch is my guest. All right, Gary, you promised as we came back from this break, we would talk about how we fight big tech, big government, big money against impossible odds. But using the wisdom of Sun Tzu, I am I'm ready to sit back and absorb some of that wisdom.
2: So Sun Tzu's basic philosophy was about how a smaller force can take on a large, a a very large army in his case. And so the things that he said militarily, we will apply it politically. And he said things like, don't attack them on the field. Don't don't have your army against their army where they outnumber you. They outclass you. They're better trained than you. Don't just sit there and say, okay, we're going to take our 5000 against your well-trained 10,000 and battle it out in the field. He said, what you do is you hit them from behind. You hit their supply points. Um, when they go and, and and go to a big city and defend it, you go to a smaller city and attack it. Then when they run over to the smaller city, you're not there because you already took off and you're going to another. Then you go attack the big city because they just left it undefended. This was his idea of, of taking your strengths and using them. Now, let's 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 go down this path through a series of questions. Brian. Do you think that the people in government right now are geniuses and that they're these very smart people that are just going to outsmart us every time?
1: No, I think they have access to uh, very impressive amounts of resources. But no, they are they are not wiser or, or better suited to running our lives than we are. Okay, so we have something that's very powerful, yet very inept.
2: So imagine the big giant that, you know, the ogre type of giant. Yes, he's very, very powerful. You, if you get within his club swing, he's going to smash you to pieces. But he can be absolutely outsmarted. So there's your start right there. If they were a lot smarter than us and they had all the brains and everything like that, and, and if, you te- if you believe that, I will challenge you on that because the evidence indicates that they're about as inept as can be. You know, in fact, I would say that they are they are less intelligent than even the majority of Americans right now. Then but because of that, then that's that should be a basis of hope. Okay, we can outsmart these guys. The second thing that most people don't understand is we think it's a 50 50 split, but that is not the case. Those who believe like us that would be classified, you have to take it into three categories, which is. Strongly conservative, and I'm using conservative, and you could substitute liberty in there. Strongly conservative, conservative, and mildly conservative. If you take those three groups, and those two, the latter two, go back and forth when it comes to presidencies and voting because they see no difference between the two parties. But if you take that equation out of it, when you add up all those three, we are 70% of the population. We don't, we're not a majority, we are a super majority. There are more people who think like us than who think like the socialists. Now they are growing, I grant you that, but the pace that they are growing means that we still have time before that reverses and we would be in the 30% minority. So you just have to understand that, that we have, we have the majority. So here is the big thing. Like I said, we get impatient. And so what we do is we go and attack the tank with the rocks. You know, we just throw the rocks at it when we're not ready because we get mad. We're working off of emotions. We're upset. Joe Biden win. I got to do something about it. They're, they're doing all these COVID things. So what do you do? You run to the legislator. You run to your state legislature and you go, I'm going to complain and I'm going to write letters and I'm going to send emails. And you know what those guys are doing? They're like, yeah, whatever. Get out of here. I already told you this. the only thing that they believe in is their party, their money and their volunteers, who are people who believe in them. Anyways, they don't care about you. They don't even care if you die. You have to understand that they do not care one little bit. Every major politician that I have met is a narcissist, egomaniac, sociopath. I'll add that into the mix. They really don't care about you. So why do we go to them? Because we're, we're looking for quick action. We're looking for something that's going to happen right away. What if we took the strategy, though, of going after these smaller areas? How hard is it to get elected to a city council, Brian? It, I don't know how experienced you are. I'm very experienced in that realm. What would you say it, it takes to get elected to a city council?
1: I think it depends, of course, on, on the size of municipality. The bigger the city, the more power at stake, and therefore the harder I think it would be. In other words, without money and connections, you're probably not going to get anywhere. But, you know, in a small rural community, I would think your chances are far better than attaining state or federal office.
2: Right. Even against big party tickets, they don't spend money on the city council guys because they need the money so that they can spend the forty five million or two hundred million to elect the governor. When they collect money, that's where they go. They're not going to spit it on the city guys. So your chances are evil. It's an equal playing field as far as I'm concerned and in most cities. And and I'll even say we'll let the big cities go. Who cares? We're just going to work on these all these municipalities that are out there in those situations for a couple thousand dollars with a couple of thousand people voting for you. You can win. What if we took that approach? Let's just go in and say, okay, we are going to take the cities and we're going to take the school districts. Those two areas, very easy elections. School districts, usually the most average you know, uh, money spent on a school district position is like $200 for, for signs. That's it. We take those two, right? We do that over, 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 over again. It's a long approach. It's a, it's a patient approach, but we do it over and over again. And then we start the process of nullification, which is that these city councils and these mayors start saying, I don't care what you said. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to resist. I'm going to just say no. And then they start doing the right things. They start doing the things that they give their There's little communities, more liberty, more freedoms. They open up their businesses. They start practicing capitalism like it's supposed to be practiced. And instead of trying to tax businesses out of existence, they try to create ways to let them grow and employ more people. And everybody gets happy, and everybody's looking at this and going, cool, I like this. Why can't my state do the same thing that my city's doing? Why can't my county do the same thing? And then you move into the counties, and like I've always said, if we have... If those of us who think like that, if wrong thinkers had control over all the city organizations and all the county organizations, I could absolutely care less what your state organizations look like, your state legislature and your governor, and what Congress and the president looks like. Karl Marx and all his buddies could run all of those institutions, we still win. We win the war.
1: I like your optimism. I'm not quite there myself, Gary, but uh, but I I see what you are I, I see the point that you're making. Um,
2: OK, if you don't see it,
1: then challenge me. Ch- tell me how that doesn't work, Brian. Uh, th- this is this is where I'm I'm the doubting Thomas. I don't know how to get enough people out of the habit of, of supporting what they've always supported. Um, I, I think they're still too comfortable. And I'm not wishing for discomfort. Okay, I'm not wishing for economic collapse. I'm not wishing for food shortages or other things that typically make people really uncomfortable. I mean, remember, do you remember the whole reason we had sanctions against uh, Iraq for as long as we did? Do you remember this? Yes. What was the what was the purpose behind those uh, um, those sanctions being imposed on the Iraqi people?
2: It was, to make, I, it was a terrorism thing, right?
1: Well, it was to make their lives so miserable that they would say, oh, enough, yeah. we're so sick of Saddam Hussein, it's his fault that we're, we're suffering, and, you know, we're going to rise up and, and throw him out on his ear. And it never happened. I mean, 500,000 Iraqis, mostly kids and, uh, and you know, older, vulnerable adults died from lack of medicine, from lack of food, clean water. Um... You know, those those sanctions were definitely felt. But but the reason that they were being felt, um, it still didn't The people weren't miserable enough to rise up and take on Saddam Hussein. And so that's that's where I'm kind of wondering what would make the American people uncomfortable enough that they would they would withdraw their support from the system as it is. Because I think they're scared, but they're still willing to hold their nose and keep putting. Mitt Romney and his like, you know, back into office thinking that that's going to solve the problem.
2: So that is actually a very good argument, and and it does have a basis in reality. The thing of it is, and this is where it gets very different from what was happening in Iran, is what does it take to make change? And then I think that there is a philosophy, well, you need the millions to make change. And um, I can I could just absolutely assure you that that is not the case. I do
1: agree with you. Just
2: not who you think they
1: are. I do agree with you on that point. It doesn't take everybody. um, I think I can't remember the name of the Polytechnical Institute that that did a study about how once you get about 10 percent of the people in a society to firmly hold an idea or or a belief, it spreads like wildfire through the rest of society. But I'm not sure what what it'll take to get us there. Let's pick this up just the other side of our break. Gary Welch is my guest. We'll be back right after this.
0: This is the Brian Hyde show this is the Brian Hyde show.
1: hey welcome back to the show Gary Welch is my guest and Gary as we uh, as we went to break we were talking about how you don't need a big majority of people to, to make effective change. And and I was mentioning, you know, ten percent of a society, or you know, holds a particular idea, and I mean, really firmly believes that idea. It will generally spread and gain acceptance with the rest of the society at that point. Uh, you were saying you feel like we're we're probably at that ten percent threshold in in American society. What what do you think is is driving um, that willingness to to stand up?
2: It's just the simple frustration of always losing, even when, quote unquote, your side wins, we still lose ground. And that realization is coming upon them. I think Donald Trump, the thing that I will always accredit him with, and that really is where I thought that he did the best thing for America, was he woke us all up to the Republican Party and and its ineffectiveness. And I'm not trying to trash the GOP or nothing like that, guys. Don't go. Don't go there. But we have to admit the GOP as a representative of those of us who believe in liberty, who believe in freedom and who believe in rights, has absolutely failed. It has let us down. And we and he exposed that. He's shown a light on it. And that's getting a lot of people within the GOP now that are joining with us, with us wrong thinkers and saying, wait a second, maybe we need to rethink who we're supporting.
1: Well, there seems to be I'm hearing rumblings and I don't run in a lot of political circles, but I'm hearing rumblings that within Republican ranks, you know, they're they're looking to purge themselves of what they consider the uh, the heretics, you know, the the radicals. Um, But I I don't know. We're at a point where where that term is is largely losing meaning, because when everybody's a radical, nobody's a radical. If if you get my drift.
2: Well, and the other side of it is you have to offer somebody a better alternative. And that's I've never seen that. I've 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 talked about this before. The failure of third parties is the failure to offer a better alternative. Oh, you want to blame the GOP? Oh, it's the Republicans and the Democrats fault. That's why we can't go anywhere. Oh, it's big media's fault. That's why we can't go anywhere. Oh, we don't have many money. That's why we can't go anywhere. No, you're not going anywhere because you don't have a good message. Get over it. Figure it out. Create an alternative message that people can get behind, and they will get behind you.
1: Like critical race theory. I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a lot of people have got behind that, unfortunately, and and it seems like that's that's being uh, you know pushed with with great gusto right now. Um, let's let's talk about existing third parties and the reasons why they're not effective. Um, I have had my moments where I thought ah oh, third party eventually is going to be palatable just because the other two have become so unsavory. I'm not so sure. Maybe I'm just discouraged. What, what's your take on this?
2: There are, there are two big things that I, I look to in third parties and failures, and I hold all of them, every single one of them, except for one. I'll, I'll, I have to go with that. I like my own. So the one that's just created the UAP, that's, that's a different story. But the rest of them have these critical failures. Number one is they are very specifically ideologically driven. They base it on the ideology, and that's what becomes important to them. And it's a philosophical, esoterical approach to politics. Politics is anything we we say. Politics is about principles. Politics is about philosophies. Politics is about that. No, it's not. Politics is about the reality of running a society. You have to figure that out, folks. So when you're ideologically driven, what happens is what happens is only those people who are ide- ideologically driven, as you are, which are the fanatics join your party and become of it and and we all know what happens to fanatics when you are standing up on the soapbox frothing at the mouth screaming and yelling and and you know all disheveled and everything i don't listen to you no matter how loud you are the second thing is is that they are and i'm and i'm going to be very blunt they are incredibly stupid about how they attack this this big old you know group of Republicans and Democrats they play their game they play the ballot access game ballot access is the biggest scam in the world people don't play that game it's rigged It is so rigged. You guys don't even know how rigged it is. But you keep playing that game and saying, well, we're going to run for governor. Well, who's going to run for governor? Well, we don't have anyone. Okay, you, taxi driver, run for governor because we need ballot access. I don't care if we don't get all the votes. We only need to get 7% so we can get ballot access. Taxi driver goes out and he represents your party. Everybody looks at him and goes, you guys are a bunch of amateurs. What are you doing?
1: Interesting. So when, when you're talking ballot access, we're talking about the candidate's access to the ballot, right? Correct. If, 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 they think if, that's, that's some holy grail. Um, okay. And I'll, I'll play devil's advocate here for a moment. The The parties, though, the major parties seem to do a pretty good job of narrowing our choices to, well, now here's a candidate that will only raise your taxes to 25% versus here's a candidate that will raise them to 26%. Sometimes it really feels like it's about that fine of a difference. And, and, and you know, where's the candidate that says, hell no, we're not going to raise taxes. In fact, we're going to roll back a bunch of these costs so that we don't have to take as much from you in the first place. We never seem to be offered a choice like that. We're allowed to vote, but only in ways that really don't threaten the the current stability of the status quo. Now, this is just my perception, but but I, I know there are others who see it that way, too.
2: Right. The two parties, the two major parties have the control. They are controlling the narrative. They are controlling the political world. They are controlling. They make the rules and they make the rules to fit them. And and they'll fight each other until a third person comes along and threatens both of them. And then they'll get together to fight that third person. And that's what ballot access is. Ballot access is all about them controlling it. So if you play their game, you're playing right into their hands of what they want you to do. And and that's it, because they want to have we want the lesser of two evils option that that will always work for us Mm -hmm. because it it, it always swings things in our favor. If we offer a different option and and a different alternative to 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 those lesser of two evils where we could say, no, we're going to go vote for the better good. Then that's a whole different story. And that person could win. But here's the here's the thing, Brian. When you go after that, so like you're going after that governor, that senator, that state legislature role, it's not only having good ideas and it's not only being a good person, you have to have the capabilities and the resources to fight that war. And most third parties do not have that ability to mount that kind of battle. Well, that's so because, even if you're really good, you're just still going to get slaughtered.
1: That's because most of those third parties don't have the ability to take money from the taxpayers and use it to fund their reelection campaigns, which the two parties do. I mean, what's the incumbency rate uh, for, for Congress? Isn't it like yeah, it's up the roof? It's like 90 percent or something. And right. as as my friend Tom Crenowitter points out, it's not because of their uh, magnetic personalities or their good looks or their towering genius. It's because the, the political class And I'm using that, you know, to just broadly incorporate all those in power, use our money to expand its own power uh, by rewarding, you know, those who are politically corrected with subsidies or grants or contracts, waivers, exemptions and other things while punishing political opponents and business competitors and fleecing the public at the same time. I mean, we don't spend a lot of time as a populist looking at what uh, what our government is spending. It's, it's almost incomprehensible because the numbers are that big. I mean, what, what's the national debt up to? Almost $30 trillion? It's It's insane. That's, that's something well, we, wait two minutes and that goes up. Right. We're, we can't even comprehend it. And yet nobody stops to ask the question, what are we getting for our money? And, and I think that's part of the function of the, that. The two-party system as it is right now does a great job of running interference so that we don't ask the kind of questions like, well, what are we really getting for all the spending that's going on? I mean, it's, it's like the world's most effective money laundering operation.
2: And well, so then this goes back. Think about the Sun Tzu strategy. When you're going after school districts and city councils and county commissions, for the most part, it is not the money game. We're not playing the money game. We're not playing the ballot access game. We're playing a whole different game. Win in those those elections. Get control of those government institutions. Then if you're a county commissioner, guess what? You built credibility. You have I don't care if you were a taxi driver when you first ran. Now you're the county commissioner. That's a big deal. You can run for a state legislature because you got the creds. And it didn't take you there. Plus, look at what you did in your county. If you develop those relationships that you build it, ninety-nine percent of all businesses are small. Businesses that means they exist within your county. Work with those people; they become your donors. Yes, they won't give you a hundred grand, but you can get a hundred of them to give you one
1: grand. Okay, Gary, I appreciate your optimism. I hope to share more of that optimism in the days ahead. But right now, I'm uh, I'm not feeling super encouraged. Even though there's, I see the truth in, in what you're saying. I think our wake up call is is still pretty much in progress. Sorry to, sorry to, to, to yeah. sorry to be the downer.
2: <laughs> no, nope, still optimistic. I'll keep beating you
1: up. Okay, I'll beat you into submission. Okay, you'll beat me till I'm happy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Gary. Great to have you as a guest.
2: All right, love it.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show.